Let's say that I take our associate pastor, James, with me, and we decide to go knocking on doors in the neighborhood, and we are going to share our faith with the people in our neighborhood. And we're approaching the first house, and James is feeling a little uh, uneasy about it, kind of timid. He actually tries to hide behind me, and he's four inches taller than I am, so that's not very easy. And I knock on that first door, and this middle-aged couple, they come out, and uh, I tell them who we are, and I say why we're there, and then I start to share the good news of Jesus with them. And very soon after, they accept Jesus as their Savior, they repent of the sin in their lives, and, and they want to be baptized right away. And then before we leave, Amen, yes. And then before we leave, they said, we're going to start attending your church. We're going to get involved in a life group. And it's been 20 years since we were last in a church. So I'm going to write a check right now for 20 years of tithing to make up for that. And James and I go out of that house. We're high-fiving. This is amazing. So then he gets kind of brave. Next house is mine, Greg. And I let him take the lead. And he knocks on the door. And then I'm looking through the little side light on some doors. And I can see this guy. We woke him up. And he gets up off the sofa. And he is about six foot six tall. For those of you that only know metric, that's two meters. That's tall. And probably weighed about 300 pounds. And then he picked up a can of beer and a cigarette. So he took the time to do that before coming to the door. And then he opens the door, yeah, what do you want? And James drops the bomb. He says, we're here to share our faith in Jesus. And he has no interest whatsoever. And he basically tells us where to go, how to get there, and then offers his assistance in us going there. And then James is just doesn't know what to say, and he looks around at me. That hopefully I will say something, and I'm already gone. And, <laughs> And he catches up to me two blocks later, and he goes, what happened back there? Everything was so great at the first house, but so wrong at this one. Well, when we make evangelism our highest priority, sometimes there are going to be amazing stories like that first one. And then there are going to be the other stories when people don't really want to respond with us. But we are to make that our number one priority, because Everybody talks about their mission statement. Businesses even have a mission statement. My wife loves to shop at this certain shoe store in Charlottetown. Pretty well every time we go over there. I'm cutting down on our trips. But, but they have this mission statement. We're here to fit your soul. And they play on the word like that. So everybody has a mission statement. Well, Jesus has one as well. And his is in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And he said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And you know something? If that was Jesus' mission in life, then that could, should be ours. We'd be wise to embrace that as well. Do you remember the time in the uh, Gospels when Jesus encountered a fig tree? And he was really hungry, and the fig tree wasn't bearing any fruit. It just had leaves on it. And Jesus cursed the fig tree, and it withered and died. And notice, he didn't condemn the tree because it was old and gnarly. He didn't condemn it because it was ugly. He condemned it because it wasn't bearing fruit. And 
there are a number of signs of a mature Christian. And one of them is reproducing ourselves in the lives of others. So we're continuing our discussions in this series, which is entitled All In. And we're wanting you to be all in as a member of this church. And I'm going to challenge you today to intentionally invest in building relationships with people who don't know Jesus. So here's the first expectation in that. We want you to look for the lost. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus told three parables, one right after the other, the lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. And with each story, he kind of raises the stakes. But one thing that's consistent in each one of them is the fact that we should be intensely looking for what was lost. And he was driving home the point that lost people matter to God and we have to look for them. But one day Jesus, this is recorded in Luke 19, he was passing through a town and the people had all crowded along the streets and a vertically challenged man, that's the proper way of saying a short man, named Zacchaeus, wanted to see Jesus. So he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to be able to do that. And Jesus stopped. He actually called out Zacchaeus' name and he said, let's do lunch together. In fact, let's do that today and we're going to do it at your house. So this dishonest tax collector ends up becoming a Christ follower. And I love what Jesus said at the end of their confrontation. He said, today salvation has come to this house. So Jesus was constantly on the lookout for people who were looking for meaning and purpose in life. And Matthew 23 tells us that one day he looked sadly at the city of Jerusalem and he wept for those who were lost. And I'm wondering, when was the last time your heart broke when you saw somebody who didn't know Christ and they were totally going down a road of self-destruction? In order to look for the lost, we have to look at the world from an eternal mindset. And remember, the Christians are no better than unbelievers. The only difference is that we've swallowed our pride and we've actually admitted that we need somebody to save us, that we can't do this on our own. So that explains why we read in John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. The only way to the Father is through me. So Jesus, he could return at any time and, and we could be assigned to one of two different places. And the Bible teaches that we find salvation only in Jesus. So that's why sharing our faith is so important because choice, not chance, is going to determine our destiny. So unless you get intentional about building relationships with friends, relatives, and neighbors, you won't get to spend time together with them in eternity because where we're going to end up will be far from where they are. We'll have totally different eternal addresses. 54 times the Bible speaks about a place of torment called hell. And guess who spoke about it the most? Our loving shepherd, Jesus Christ. And he went to some incredible lengths in order to make certain that those who put their trust in him would never have to go to such a place. But people don't need to be told they are going to hell. They need to actually know how to get to heaven. And, and that's where you come in. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, 
Peter wrote, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but everyone to repent. So do something like this. Get a little notebook, and you could keep it in your back pocket, or if you wear a suit to work, you could put it inside the jacket pocket. Or maybe if you're a woman, you could put it in your purse. And every time you meet someone during the day, just take that notebook out and write down their name and be praying for those people. And then maybe at the end of the day, you could choose one or two of those names that you really want to concentrate upon. Because each person that you write the name of in that book is important to God. And so choose a few of them and then try to build a relationship with them. Invest some time and energy into getting to know them. And then invite them to come to church or or to come to your life group or some other activity of the church. The people have said that we have a gather and scatter mentality in the church. We gather together on Sunday mornings and then we scatter. We go out into the world for the rest of the week. And please remember that we're going to follow the example of our loving shepherd. So your job isn't to drive people like we would when we drive cattle, but it's to lead them like a sheep. Most of you knew that I had grown up on a farm and one of our jobs was milking cows and then we would have to drive the cattle into a back pasture for them to eat and then we'd go get them for the next milking. So twice a day my brother and I had to do this. And the cows, you had to be behind them. Dad had a PVC stick that we would use and just tap them every once in a while to get them moving. They'd stop and chew grain and through the fence or they'd be chewing on grass, constantly driving them. And my brother and I, maybe we were going to a golf game if it was the morning milking or maybe if it was the evening, we were going to the stock car races and we had to get our work done. Or then as they get older, going on a date, had to get those cows taken care of. But it's so different when it comes to sheep because you lovingly lead them like a shepherd. You faithfully just kind of plant seeds and then with strangers, with friends, and then you look for opportunities knowing that God will do his part. But the key in this is that you can never get a harvest unless you plant seeds. And you'll never know how God might use you as a bridge to bring someone you come in contact with to him. So look for the lost. But the second thing that he tells us is to actually listen to the lost. Jesus listened. Remember the story in John chapter 4 when Jesus had an encounter with a woman by a well in a town called Sychar. And he did a number of things here by entering into a conversation with her, a number of things that were wrong. First of all, men and women didn't talk together in public. And then He was a Jew, she was a Samaritan, they never intermingled at all. And then we also had to look at what this woman did as a living. She had a very bad reputation. Yet Jesus broke all those rules and he spoke to her. And he didn't just talk to her, but he listened. And one of the keys in sharing our faith is listening. James 1.19 says, My dear brothers and sisters, always be willing to listen and slow to speak. 
Do not become angry easily. So any questions that will help you determine where they're coming from, you need to ask. We think we have to do all the talking, but it all begins with listening. So if I've ever had some time with you, I ask a lot of questions. I want to know what's going on in your life. And have you ever noticed that the longer that we're Christians, the more people tend to kind of pull away from those who don't buy into Christianity? Now, in some circumstances, it's understandable because it might be an individual that needs to make a clean break from a circle of friendships because that group just bring them down. Or maybe it's a place where an addiction has flourished, so that place needs to be avoided. It might even be a group where matters of faith are just constantly belittled and it just isn't helping you at all. But as you mature in Christ, you begin to realize, wow, I've been entrusted with some really good news, and I need to share that news with others. And, but I see it all the time, where Christians just kind of gradually pull away from the unbelievers. But here's an example. A Christian man is part of an accountability group with two other men. They meet together for breakfast. They have a time of prayer. And then they go off to their day. And at lunchtime, he's invited to go to lunch with some of his co-workers. But he knows the way one of those guys talks. So, so he says, no, thank you to that. And then later in the afternoon, one guy says, hey, we've got a game, a softball game tonight at work. Do you want to come and play? He says, no, I've got plans tonight. So then he finishes his work and he goes and picks up his children from their Christian school and they go home, they eat, then they change clothes and they go to church to listen to a guest speaker on the topic of why the world is going to hell. And he had every opportunity throughout that day to plant some seeds and save people from going in that direction. Now, I want you to understand that all those things are good and we need to do them, but if you never intentionally invest in the lives of the people around you, the people that you are actually even closest to, and you've earned the right to be heard by, then you've missed out on our purpose as a church because our purpose here is to be salt and light. Salt is a, actually a preservative. It's a purifying agent. And it also adds pizzazz to food. But that might be ordinarily bland. Light exists to drive the darkness away. And each one of you here that belongs to Christ is a light. And it's great for your light to be shining here, but I don't see it as much here. But when you let that light shine out in the world, it shines so much brighter and it's so much more evident and you make an amazing difference. Now, I'm not saying that you don't need to be here at all. You come here, you get inspired to go out and let your light shine in the world. So there's a biblical concept that you've probably heard. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And it's pretty tough to listen to the lost if we're not going to be among them, if we're not building relationships with them. But be on your guard. Make certain that you are having more influence on them than they are having influence on you. So get out of our comfort zone and intentionally invest in building relationships with people. Evangelism takes place 
because time has been invested and relationships have been formed. And look at Roberta Kuhn said in her book, Seize the Moment, Share the Truth. She said, let's give them what so few people will, our time, our hearts, our listening ears. I have discovered that people will most often come to love us before they love our Savior. Relationships are so important. They are going to love us before they will trust us to follow Jesus. But what's that going to look like for you? In our Western culture, we see people as interruptions. But it wasn't for Jesus. If it wasn't for interruptions, he wouldn't have had a ministry. All day long, he responded to the needs of others. He built margin into his schedule so that he could take some time with someone if they had a need, if they had to question him about something. The lost weren't seen as an enemy. They were seen as the number one priority, and he listened. I attended a global leadership summit, and one of the speakers said, you pastors that are here today, do you have a to-do list that you start with at the beginning of each day, and I nodded along with everybody else. And then he said, at the end of the day, is your list shorter or longer? Well, it's longer. And I want to say I'm sorry for the times when I've turned a deft ear in the direction of the unbeliever who was reaching out to someone to simply listen to them while I was absorbed in trying to get through that list of things that I had to finish that day. We just pray that the Holy Spirit works in their lives and we've got to get over being absorbed by what we have going on and then not hearing the cries and whispers of those around us. In 1 Peter again, the Apostle Peter assumes that people would be listening to non-Christians who are curious about Christianity. But respect Christ as the Holy Lord in your hearts Always be ready to answer everyone who asks you to explain about the hope you have. But answer in a gentle way and with respect. Keep a clear conscience so that those who speak evil of your good life in Christ will be made ashamed. So when we look for those who are spiritually lost and listen to them, that's when God does his best work. And sometimes all we do is simply plant a seed and we may never see that person again. And someone else comes along and they are the water and helps that seed germinate. And maybe another person is the one who actually sees the result, the person coming to Christ. And the Bible refers to that as the harvest. But we plant those seeds and we just trust that the Holy Spirit is going to work on that individual's heart. And remember, we never experience a harvest unless we plant those seeds. So the final expectation is to love the lost. And that's the highest motivation for sharing your faith. It's love. And each day you must see your role as a representative of Jesus Christ. Because in John 13, he said, all people will know that you are my followers if you love one another. That word is so important. But you might say, but wait now. You don't know my boss. He is so repulsive. Or you don't know what my neighbor's like. That, that guy, we just can't stand to be around him. But I want you to know what Joseph Aldrich says. He said, remember, non-believers are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. 
So we have to begin to see people through the eyes of Jesus. And when the opportunity to courageously speak up comes, we don't wimp out, we don't just do silent treatment, clam up. Someone needs to represent the Lord. And who better to do that than those who claim to have that relationship with him and those who claim to follow him? See, there are a couple of ways you can show people who haven't yet become a disciple of Jesus Christ that love that I'm talking about. And once again, Jesus is the model for this in the way that he interacted with the woman that had been caught in adultery. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were trying to find ways in which they could trap Jesus. They would hear him teach, and then they thought, maybe there's a loophole there that we can bring up. So one time they brought this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. There's no mention about the other person that was involved, just this woman. And they brought her in while Jesus was teaching and threw her on the ground. Now, I managed to get down the first service so I can see it again. So they asked Jesus, okay, master, this woman has committed adultery and in the Jewish law, that means she should be stoned. So what do you say? And Jesus got down on one knee and he started to write something with his finger in the dirt and didn't answer. Great teacher, what do you say? What do we do with this woman? And he still didn't talk. He just kept writing and they came over and the Bible tells us that one at a time they looked at what he was writing and then they left. And I believe that he was writing their names and maybe even the sins that they had committed because he said, he who is without sin go ahead and throw that first stone. So they all left one after another. And then we're going to actually see how he showed love to the lost because the first way to do that is to extend grace. And then Jesus said to the woman, where is everyone? Isn't there anyone left here that is going to accuse you? And Jesus, we read this in John 8. She answered, no one, sir. Then Jesus said, I also don't judge you guilty. You may go now. So learn a lesson from this woman. Those who are unfamiliar with the gospel story, they desperately need hope. And the guilt is getting the best of them. The sin baggage that they have, it's just dragging them down. And when you extend grace instead of judgment, all of a sudden you're sharing God's love. And that is going to radically transform people. And we're not trying to win some kind of debate. Back when I was in Bible college, I also took that course in uh, apologetics. And we were supposed to put together a debate, assuming that we were in a debate with an atheist. And my father-in-law was the professor, so he's eagerly waiting to see what his great son-in-law was going to do. And I start off my debate by saying, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. And Alan goes, I don't think you're going to win anybody that way, Greg. And, and it's not by throwing judgment out there. I'm not going to win that guy to Christ. But Jesus extended grace. And the second way he loved the lost was to extend and express the truth. Because we need to look at the last part of that verse that I just read. Because a lot of people leave out the final phrase. And here's that verse again. 
She answered, no one, sir. Then Jesus said, I also don't judge you guilty. You may go now. But then here's the phrase that gets left out by too many people. But don't sin anymore. So that's true love. It's grace and it's truth combined. And I forgive you, but now move in that opposite direction of a life of sin. But you might say, well, that person's faith, that's a private matter. I shouldn't be needling and interfering there. Or then you say, maybe I just can't get up enough courage to share my faith. Maybe you can't, but the Holy Spirit working through you can. And God uses all kinds of temperaments to get his message out. The Apostle Peter, he was the extrovert. He was the one who struck out with his sword when Jesus was being arrested. He was the one that got to speak on the day the church started. And his brother Andrew was more of an introvert. But every time the name of Andrew is mentioned in the Gospel of John, we find him bringing somebody to Jesus Christ. Yes, Satan is going to whisper in your ear, you don't know enough about the Bible to answer the questions that they're going to ask. But if you think about it, most non-Christians aren't turned off by a person's lack of understanding of tough biblical questions or concepts. They are turned off by a person's hypocrisy. So just keep planting those seeds, telling your story, listening to their story, and connecting it all with God's story. Now, I've been talking about the importance of us sharing our faith with those who don't know Jesus, but maybe you've been attending here regularly, and perhaps you haven't accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life and been baptized into him. This could be a great day to make that decision. Maybe you made the decision long ago, but you didn't follow through with the baptism part. It might have been out of fear, or it might have been because of the faith tradition you were brought up in, and you balked at baptism, and you said, I'll do it later. But maybe today is that later. For one week each summer, our family rents a cottage that's big enough to house all ten of us. My three daughters, three sons-in-law, two grandchildren, my wife Pat and I, but we couldn't get a cottage on PEI last summer that was big enough for us. So we actually rented Canoe Cove Christian Camp, all kinds of room. And I would love to bring the whole church there sometime because the main building will sleep 240 people in the bunk style. And then there are four other buildings that have beds and a private bathroom. That's where the pastors and elders would stay if we go. And the rest of you would be fighting over the main bathrooms in the big building. And then the, uh, 10 acres of land where tents and trailers could be set up. It would be an amazing time. I'm getting off track here. But, so we rented it for four nights. And the first day we noticed that the neighboring camp next door, they weren't, nobody was there, but they had a, a floating raft that was anchored to a sandbar, and you could only access it at high tide. And they're not around, it's the Atlantic Ocean, so it's open to everybody. So my family's out there, they're having a wonderful time. I could hear the screams before I even got down to the beach, but I'm not a water warrior, and I'm kind of sitting along the side of the beach, and then I knew this was coming. My granddaughter, Grampy, 
come on in, the water. I said, Jane, I've got to read my Bible. You just go ahead and have fun. And then my daughters start bugging me. Dad, come on, it's a blast. So I finally decide I'm going in. Now, I mentioned it's high tide, so, and I don't swim very well. And to get out to that sandbar, I had to walk through water. I'm on my tiptoes, my nose up like this, just hoping that I don't step into a hole somewhere and then start panicking. But I got out there, I jumped on the raft and knocked them all off, and we had a great time. But they weren't upset that it took me so long to get there. They were just happy that I was out there having fun with them. And God doesn't get upset if it has taken you a while to make a decision for him. He is just going to be so excited when you make that decision and when you enter into that relationship with him. In church, it's kind of easy to sit there and not get involved and make excuses for why we're content to be spectators and not participants. And Satan, he has an amazing way of getting people to put off making spiritual decisions. He'll make you think, you know, if you do this, you're going against what your parents had done. And maybe you've grown up in a tradition where you were christened as a baby and you think if I do anything else that's communicating that uh, I'm not trusting in what my parents did but your parents were trying to communicate in their faith tradition that what they wanted for you was to grow up and know the Lord so that is awesome but in the Bible each time a person committed to follow Christ they chose to be baptized and since it was a personal decision And baptism symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as much as Satan would like that to be a barrier, God wants that to actually be a benchmark in your life, one that you will never forget. 